Um, again, because it's communion, joy of having Rooted in with us. Hey, Rooted, lovely that you're here. A um, couple of questions for you guys as we uh, go through. Uh, why does God plan the events of history? There's one. Why does God plan the events of history? And a second one. Why should we trust those plans? Why should we trust them? Great, there's a, um, an American novel called Freedom. Don't need to know much about the plot, but one of the main characters, Walter, experiences a massive emotional trauma and it leaves him reeling, questioning his life. Listen to the description beyond the screen. He, that's Walter, he let the phone slip from his hand and lay crying for a while. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to live. Each new thing he encountered in life impelled him in a direction that fully convinced him of its rightness. But then the next new thing loomed up and impelled him in the opposite direction, which also felt right. He seemed to himself a purely reactive pinball in a game whose only object was to stay alive for staying alive's sake. See, for Walter, life felt like a pinball. His life felt like it bounced from one thing to another. No direction, no sense of purpose, no sense of how to live his life. Sometimes I think that's how life can feel for us, isn't it? Maybe personally. It feels as though you bounce from one event, one moment to another, and it's a bit directionless. Where's it all going? What am I aiming for? But we can also look at the bigger picture not just our life, but all of life, all of history, and wonder, is history just a reactive pinball, bouncing from one event to the next, going nowhere? See, for God's people living in the time of Isaiah, life, I think, might have felt a bit like that for them. Originally, they thought, we are God's people. The Lord is going to turn us into a great nation. That's what he promised. But a bit of history, between 800 and 700 BC, the nation of Israel is divided. It's invaded by one country after another. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And then the northern kingdom is conquered and it disappears off into the nations in exile. And then from 700 to 550 BC, the southern kingdom is evade, invaded again and again until eventually she too is overcome and her people are sent into exile. Life must have felt a little bit like a pinball game for them. Just bouncing from one invasion to the next, one event to another, seemingly no direction, no clarity, no hope. And so throughout chapters 40 to 55, there are a couple of things the Lord keeps stressing, and here is another one of them. He keeps saying to his people, I am the Lord of history. There is a goal. There is a purpose. History is not a pinball bouncing from one event to the next. Let's see that. First of all, our God is the Lord of history. Now, if you've been with us in Isaiah, you might have spotted that the theme of God's servant keeps recurring through these chapters. And sometimes the servant is referring to Israel, God's people. Sometimes it's referring to a future saviour who we know, because we've read the rest of the story, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes it's referring to a historical leader, Cyrus, the king of Persia. 
And that is the case here. The Lord is speaking of his servant Cyrus. Now, Cyrus, or Cyrus the Great, was the king of Persia. He lived from around 600 BC to 540 BC. And under his rule, the Persian Empire grew and grew and grew to become the mightiest power in the Middle East. This is what's interesting. Before Cyrus came to power, before he marched out with his armies, before he conquered and devastated and overcame, in fact, 100 years before he was even born, the Lord predicts it all. Verse 1. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you. Those words are written a hundred years before Cyrus is even born. See, the Lord maps out Cyrus's life before any of it happens. And what is true of Cyrus's future, the Lord knows it, the Lord ordains it and purposes it, is true of all future events. Listen to verse 7. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Speaking about the future. Speaking about all the events that will happen, whether good or bad, light or darkness, prosperity or disaster, the Lord says, I do all these things. The events of history are not a reactive pinball, bouncing and rebounding from one moment to the next with no direction or purpose or reason. No, the events of history, whether good or bad, whether prosperity or disaster, They are ordained and purposed and brought about by the living God. I know that's going to raise some questions. Of course it is. And maybe we'll we'll touch on some of those questions later. But, But let's bear with this. Let's keep going with this idea for a moment. Because in chapter 45, we see something of what God's purpose is in history. So the Lord raises up Cyrus. He enables Cyrus to conquer empires and nations. And why? Why is he ordaining the events of history and the events of Cyrus' life? Verse 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you, Cyrus, by name, and bestow on you a title of honor. The Lord chooses Cyrus and makes him powerful and successful. Why? For the sake of his own people. Remember, Isaiah's readers, they are in exile in Babylon. And this is how he's going to set them free. He will raise up Cyrus to overcome Babylon so that his people can return home. See, kings rise and kings fall. Nations rise and nations fall. Why? So that the Lord can rescue his people. And while this is talking about a very specific moment in history... The principle is still true for us. The Lord continues to plan and purpose history for the sake of his people. Romans 8, 28. The Lord works all things for the good of those who love him. All things. 
Under the sovereign power of God, nations rise and nations fall. Economies boom and economies bust. Wars break out and wars cease. Why? For the good of those who love him. I don't know how you feel about that. And I say it raises questions, doesn't it? And the Bible has more to say in response to some of those questions about suffering and evil. But I don't want us to get sidetracked there. Because I don't want us to miss how precious this is. Our lives are not reactive pinballs, colliding and bouncing from one thing to the next. Our, our lives are not lost in the apparent chaos and mayhem and madness of world events. No, the Lord throughout history works all things for the good of his people. I wonder if you've seen the film Schindler's List. <clears throat> kind of harrowing film, isn't it, if you've seen it? all about what happened to the Jews under Nazi Germany. And the film is kind of shot in this, this kind of grey, this black and, and, and white, not, not, not any colour in it, except for a little girl who wears this red coat. It's very powerful. She pops up in lots of scenes. There she is in her red coat, stands out. And, and there's all sorts of theories about why the girl is wearing a red coat, what she symbolises. But at the very least, it forces you to notice her. In the horrors of all that is going on, in the chaos and the terrible events that are taking place around her, she is not lost. You see her. She is known. And the church, God's people, are like that little girl wearing the red coat. In the events of history, in the comings and the goings, in the times of prosperity, in the times of disaster, times of light and dark, the Lord never loses sight of his people. His eye, his heart, is always upon us. And he ensures that all things work for the good of those who love him. And and there's more. The events of history are not just for the sake of God's people, Actually, the Lord ordains and purposes the events of history for the sake of all people. Listen to verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, Cyrus, though you have not acknowledged me, so that, why? So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. And there is no other. See, the Lord strengthens Cyrus and gives Cyrus an empire so that all people might come to know that there is no other God apart from the God of Israel. And that is actually what happened, although not in the short term. Cyrus rises to power. Israel are set free and they return home. And although the nations didn't turn to God straight away, in verses 14 to 25, we're told that they will. Verse 14, the Egyptians, the Cushites, the Sabaeans will come to trust in the Lord. It didn't happen in Cyrus's time, but it did happen because of Cyrus. Think about it. Because the Lord raised up Cyrus, because Cyrus set Israel free and allowed them to return home, the nation of Israel was preserved. And because Cyrus ended Israel's exile, people returned to Jerusalem. And Jeconiah, from the kingly line of David, 
returned with his family. And he had a son called Shealtiel, who had a son called Zerubbabel. And more sons came until eventually 500 years later, Joseph was born. Joseph married Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus Christ, the savior of the world. Do you see? Because of Cyrus, because he rose to power and chased Babylon out of Israel, Jesus was able to be born in Bethlehem. Because Cyrus sent God's people back home to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, Jesus was able to visit that temple when a boy and say, this is my father's house. I'm the son of God. He was able to walk the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming salvation. He was able to die on a cross outside of Jerusalem and rise again and be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. How do I know that there is no God beside the God of our Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? How do I know that there is no other God than the God of Israel? Because the Lord raised up Cyrus. I will strengthen you, Cyrus. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none beside me. The events of history are not random. There is purpose. The Lord works all things for the good of his people and the good of all people that all may hear of the Lord Jesus. And yes, this is about a particular moment, a particular figure and a particular time. But it is true of all moments and all times. The events of history serve to grow the kingdom of God, to make the glory and fame of God known across the earth. I was talking to some Christian brothers and sisters who've moved to the UK from, from Hong Kong in recent weeks, and they told me that actually they know of many Christians who've left Hong Kong because it's becoming so hard to be a Christian in that place. And I said, oh, that's terrible. It's terrible that all these Christians are having to leave. But interestingly, he saw the events of history through the eyes, uh, eyes of Isaiah 45. He said, do you know what? Maybe, maybe the Lord has allowed this persecution so that his people will have to leave Hong Kong and set up their lives in other parts of the world so that they can then bring the good news of Jesus to people who would never have heard of him otherwise possible, isn't it? The Lord working through the events of history so that all may hear of the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let us never despair when we see the big things happening around us. Maybe the Lord is refining his people through them, growing them in faith and obedience, doing them for our good. Maybe he is rearranging his kingdom. Maybe he is moving his resources around the earth to other parts of the world so that other people can hear of the Lord Jesus. We are too small to understand all that is going on. But the Lord tells us so clearly, I ordain the events of history for the sake of my people and for the sake of all people. Let's trust him in that. Our Lord is the God of history Secondly, though, let's be careful how we respond to that. Let's be careful how we respond. So there is a story to history. There is a purpose, a beginning, a middle, and an end. The Lord is the author of that story. 
And there are two ways you can respond to that idea. First, there is a positive response. Yes, Lord. So, so listen to verse 8. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. It's a, it's a brilliant picture, isn't it? As the clouds pour down rain, so may the heavens pour down the Lord's righteousness, his ways and his goodness. Or as the earth produces plants and trees that flourish with flowers and fruit, so may the plans and purposes of the Lord flourish and prosper. This is the positive response. Let it be so, Lord. Let your plans and your purposes be fulfilled. It's exactly what Jesus teaches us to pray, isn't it, in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our God is the Lord of history. And the right response, let it be so. May your will be done. May your plans and purposes be fulfilled on earth as they are in heaven. The Lord says in verse 24 and 25, All will bow before me. And our response, let it be so, Lord. He says, my son will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. May it be so, Lord. He says, I will establish my kingdom, my law across the earth. Yes, Lord, please do. My glory will fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. Yes, Lord. See, here's, here's the great response to the news that God is the Lord of history. Let it be so. Your plans, your ways, your will, your purposes, let them all be so. Let them come about. But there's another response. And maybe this is the response that we instinctively have. Verse 9. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker. You see, some heard of the Lord's plans to raise up Cyrus and to use Cyrus to save Israel, and they were appalled. They quarrel with their maker. They argue with their God. Here's their problem. This is why they quarrel with their God. The person who is going to save them the person who's going to be their anointed or literally their Messiah, it's not an Israelite. It's not someone from the kingly line of David. It's a foreign emperor, a foreign dictator, Cyrus. And the people's response is, what are you thinking, Lord? You can't use Cyrus. You can't use a foreign king to save your people, to accomplish your plans and your purposes. What are you thinking? Now, to help you feel something of what some of those people felt, imagine another name. I'm just going to use a slightly controversial name. Imagine the Lord said, I will raise up Donald Trump to be your anointed. He will save you. I understand a bit more now, don't you, perhaps how they felt. It's hard, isn't it? The Lord can use all kinds of people to bring about his plans and his purposes. 
And if you think that's hard, it gets harder. You see, when it comes to God's interaction with history and the events of history in the world, we imagine that the world is one massive chessboard. And there's all sorts of pieces laid out before God. And he looks down and he sees the pieces on the board and then he thinks, how am I going to play this? And in his wisdom, he, he moves the pieces around to bring about what he wants. You know, ideally, he, he wouldn't use Cyrus or he wouldn't use Donald Trump. But that's how the board is set up. He, he uses the pieces in front of him. So he takes Cyrus and uses him to rescue his people. I think that's how we think maybe that God is interacting with the world. But that is not how the future comes about. God is not a master chess player. Well, I'm sure he is, actually. I'm sure he's a very good chess player. But that is not how he brings about the future. He knows the future because he creates the future. Do you remember a few weeks back, we thought about how does God know all things in the world? Does he discover them? Does he learn about them? No, he knows all things because he creates all things. And it is the same with the future. Back in verse 7, which I read earlier, when speaking about future events, the Lord uses three words, all from Genesis chapter 1, words that describe the creation of the world. Form, create, make. He says about future events, I form light and create darkness. I bring or make prosperity and create disaster. He forms, he creates, he makes the future just like he formed, created and made the universe. How does the Lord know the future? How can he be so sure how things are going to work out? It's not because he's a brilliant chess player moving the pieces around. It's because he creates the future. I form the light and create the darkness. I bring prosperity and create calamity. It's hard, isn't it? Hard to hear that. The Lord says, I know the future because I create the future. And then we look at the events of history and we look at the events of our own lives and we instinctively think, really? You planned this? You purposed that? What were you thinking, Lord? But listen to what God says to those who quarrel with him. And hold on. As in the original Jurassic Park, I think it said, hold on to your, your seats or something like that as they went on the kind of uh, roller coaster through Jurassic Park world. Hold on because this is strong stuff. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker. Those who are nothing but potsherds, bit, bits of broken pottery among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say, the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? Now, Sometimes the Lord is gentle with us. He reasons with us and he encourages us to trust him, even when it's hard and difficult, but then sometimes he is very direct with us. He basically is saying here, isn't he? Who are you to challenge the way I do things. Who are you to question my methods? Who are you to question my goals in history? And we've got loads of this kind of air drying clay around the house. 
and on long trips to Wales, the children beaver away in the car as we drive the four or five hours, making all kinds of things. It's like a production line, a little factory going on in the back of the car. And often, lots of little vegetables and, and cakes are made for their, their doll's house. Now, just imagine Eliza makes a little carrot. It's orange with the kind of green leaves at the top. But maybe she thinks, you know what? That's not quite what I wanted. So she rolls it up, flattens it, and puts it back in the pot. No one is going to jump in and say, Eliza, what are you doing? You can't screw up that carrot. You can't flatten it. That's not fair. No, we think it's perfectly fine for her to mold and shape that piece of clay however she wants. We are like the clay, and the Lord is like the potter. He can shape us and shape our lives and shape history however he wants. He doesn't have to give any explanation or any reason to us for any of the choices that he makes. Now, often he does. He shows us that we can trust him even when we don't understand what's going on. But we've got to remember this. We are the clay and he is the potter. Listen to verse 11. This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker, concerning things to come, the future. Do you question me about my children? Do you say to me, what are you thinking, God? You can't do that. Do you give me orders about the work of my hands? And what is the Lord's response? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. That's it. That's all the explanation you're going to get. Lord, why? Why Cyrus? Why Ukraine? Why cancer? Why famine? Why drought? Why this? Why now? Why me? The Lord's answer, here anyway, it is I who made the earth and everything on it. That's it. Why is the Lord doing these things? He doesn't have to give us an explanation. He just needs to remind us that he is God and we are not. I told you, it's strong stuff, isn't it? But we need to learn that whatever it is the Lord is doing, it is always right, even when we don't understand it. There's another moment in the Bible when someone questions the Lord's plans. In Jesus' life, there's a moment when he says to his disciples, it'll be on the screen, the Son of Man, me, the Lord, the King of Kings, must suffer, be captured, tortured, and killed. And Peter says to Jesus, no, that's madness. You're, you're the Messiah, the Lord, the King of Kings. You can't die. You can't be captured. You can't be tortured. Peter quarrels with his maker. He says to Jesus, bad idea. What, what are you thinking? And Jesus' response to Peter Get behind me, Satan. Strong stuff, isn't it? But if Peter had his way, if we had our way and the plans of history went the way we wanted them to go, if Jesus hadn't suffered and died, then there would be no offer of salvation. There would be no life everlasting. There would be no forgiveness of sins and resurrection from the dead. When you are tempted to look at the events of history or the events of your own life and think, Lord, what are you doing? 
Remember the cross. To Peter, it seemed like madness, like God was getting it all wrong, and yet through the cross, salvation came to the world. Brothers and sisters, in the face of turmoil and events that are hard to understand, it is okay to cry out to the Lord. It is okay to ask why. But don't stay there. Affirm again your trust in his sovereign plans and purposes. We are the clay. He is the potter. He could see how the cross would bring salvation. We would never have seen that. And say to him, whatever his plans are, let it be so. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us trust him and obey him. Our God is the Lord of history. The past and the present are in his hands and he creates the future. Don't quarrel with your maker. Trust him and obey him.